Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin and go to Japan for an update on the G7 summit, which has been dominated by the surprise arrival of Ukraine's President Zelensky on a French government plane, leading to pledges from world leaders to starve Russia of resources used in its war machine while calling for a free and open Indo-Pacific and warning about China's economic coercion, at the same time urging China to pressure Russia to end the war in Ukraine. Joining us is Alice Krauss, Professor Emeritus of Japanese Politics and Policymaking at the University of California, San Diego School of Global Policy and Strategy. He is a leading expert on Japanese politics and U.S.-Japan relations, and his books include The Rise and Fall of Japan's LDP, Political Party Organizations as Institutions, Beyond Bilateralism, U.S.-Japan Relations in the New Asia-Pacific, and Reluctant Warriors, Germany-Japan and their U.S. Alliance Dilemma. Then we'll look into the Arab League summit in Saudi Arabia, hosted by Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who welcomed the Syrian dictator Bashar al-Assad back into the 22-member league at the same time welcoming Ukraine's President Zelensky, who pointedly remarked that there were some Arab leaders who turned a blind eye, willfully ignoring Russia's invasion. Joining us is Dr. John Hoffman, a Middle East analyst specializing in political Islam and Middle East geopolitics. He is currently an adjunct professor at George Mason University and has published in a variety of academic and policy-oriented platforms, including Middle East Policy, Foreign Policy, The Washington Post, and he has an article at Foreign Policy, The Arab Autocrat's New Religious Playbook. Then finally, we'll get an assessment of claims made by Prigozhin, the psychotic murderer leading the Wagner mercenaries, who claims that he has captured the bitterly contested city of Bakhmut, as well as moves by the Biden administration to allow Ukrainian pilots to train on F-16s, which Russia has condemned. Joining us is Aram Shabanian, the open source information gathering manager at New Lines Institute. He recently taught in non-proliferation and terrorism studies at the Middlebury Institute for International Studies at Monterey, where his research focused on the Cold War and contemporary histories of Eastern Europe and the Middle East. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for background briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls, or constant fundraising as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. 
And joining us now from Japan is Ellis Krauss, who's a professor emeritus of Japanese politics and policymaking at the University of California, San Diego School of Global Policy and Strategy. He is a leading expert on Japanese politics and U.S.-Japan relations, and his books include The Rise and Fall of Japan's LDP, Political Party Organizations and Institutions, Beyond Bilateralism, U.S.-Japan Relations in the New Asia-Pacific, and Reluctant Warriors, Germany, Japan, and their U.S. Alliance Dilemma. Welcome to Background Briefing, Ellis Krauss. Great to be here, and greetings from Osaka, Japan. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Ellis, and... I take it that the Japanese media has been in a frenzy over the surprise visit of Ukraine's President Zelensky. And on Saturday, the G7 leaders, including Zelensky, went to the Peace Park, the memorial there in Hiroshima, which is a very powerful symbol of nuclear war, uh, which is a kind of subtext in the Ukraine war, so describe what the mood is like in Japan. Well, the, the Hiroshima summit, first of all, having the summit in Hiroshima is hugely symbolic. It is Prime Minister Kishida's home district and hometown, so it is not surprising he would have it in his hometown. But he is also a big advocate uh, of uh, restricting the use of nuclear weapons and uh, non-proliferation. So uh, he intentionally had the summit there as a symbol and, of course, as a message to Moscow, who has threatened the use of uh, nuclear weapons, which has appalled the whole civilized world. So um, it is a, a very important symbol and message to Russia that uh, he had this here and that Zelensky went to the memorial. Well, I've been there twice. It is um, a very sobering place. And, of course, nobody wants a nuclear war. The big disagreement in the world, of course, is how do you prevent it? Do you prevent it by deterrence? Or do you prevent it by trying to get rid of all nuclear weapons, which is, frankly, probably an unrealistic pipe dream. Um, Kishida has not gone far that far as to call for the uh, abolishment of nuclear weapons, more their restriction on their use uh, and threats of their use. Uh, and that's because Japan itself is protected by U.S. Nucle- so-called nuclear umbrella. There is a large proportion, I wouldn't say a majority, but a large proportion of the Japanese public who would like to see all nuclear weapons abolished. Nobody likes them. But at the same time, they do bask in the protection of the U.S. nuclear umbrella. So there's a huge contradiction in Japanese politics uh, over uh, the nuclear issue, perhaps expected because uh, Japan was the only nation to suffer uh, the horrible effects of nuclear war. Um, If you want, I can tell you a story about... um, an interesting counterpoint to the nuclear uh, memorial at Hiroshima, but I don't know if we have time for that. Well, just if you briefly would, I'm curious. Yeah. Well, ironically, an hour and a half from Hiroshima and the the famous anti-nuclear symbol of the use of nuclear weapons here, which was absolutely horrible, um, is a little island. It's now called the Bunny Island, because of all the wild rabbits there, 
but it is actually where the Japanese made chemical weapons during World War II that killed 80 million Chinese in their war in China. And it is a very sobering place, although there is now a honeymoon hotel on the island, even though the ground is still so contaminated from the chemical weapons production that you can't drink the water there. Um, The reason that it's so ironic is because the reason that chemical weapons were not used on U.S. soldiers in World War II is because Japan and the U.S. were the only non-signatories to an anti-chemical weapons ban, international anti-chemical weapons ban. And And the U.S. told Japan secretly that if they used chemical weapons on U.S. soldiers, we had more of them and we would use them on them. So they were never used in the U.S.-Japanese Pacific War. So there is a case where deterrence in chemical weapons worked, and a treaty banning the use of chemical weapons uh, was not effective in banning their use uh, in by the Japanese against the Chinese. So, you know, there are many ironies and contradictions uh, around nuclear weapons in Japan. But Hiroshima is a powerful symbol of let's not use them, let's not threaten to use them, and let's try and restrict their use and proliferation. So, Alice Krauss, let's talk a little about uh, what we've learned so far from this summit dominated by the surprise arrival of Ukraine President Zelensky on a French government Mm -hmm. plane. Now, apparently they've pledged to starve Russia of resources used in its war machine. They're calling for a free and open Indo-Pacific and warning about China's economic coercion. At the same time, they're urging China to pressure Russia to end the war in Ukraine. What else struck you about it? Well, I think uh, what struck me about it was the unity of the uh, G7 nations, you know, the the most economically advanced democratic uh, nations in the world, which have lost a bit of their clout in the world. Let's face it. Uh, In 1945 or so, they were about 70% of the world's economy, and now they're about 45%. And there are people in the uh, developing world, the so-called global south, who are not greatly supporters of the attempt to punish Russia for its invasion of Ukraine. And that is another theme at this conference that Prime Minister Yoshida has taken up as a personal quest. He believes that Europe and the United States have not paid enough attention to the global south. And that is one reason why they have not joined the G7 in their attempts to punish Russia for its uh, adventures, uh, its ambition to take over Ukraine and disturb the international and overthrow the international order of the post-world war. So he has made a special theme of this summit, uh, that is getting the global south to join with the G7 countries and to pay more attention to them, not just over the issue of Russia, but in general. Thus, he's uh, invited countries like South Korea, India, Indonesia, Brazil, Vietnam, the Comoros, and even the Cook Islands in the Pacific to the G7 summit. This is something that has not occurred very often in the past. And it's an attempt to integrate the global South into 
the framework of decision-making uh, with the West and with Japan. Japan wants to serve as a bridge between the G7 and these global South developing countries. So that is another theme that hasn't gotten as much attention, I think, in the American and European press that is important here. The alternative, Ellis, to the G7 is the BRICS, B-R-I-C-S, which is Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. And as it happened, uh, President Zelensky met with India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi at at this G7 conference. It was their first face-to-face meeting since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And of course, we know that India sits on the fence and is somewhat supportive of Russia because it depends on Russian arms so much. Yes. What do you know about that meeting? Did Zelensky in any way sway Modi to be more supportive of the country that's the victim here of aggression on the basis? I, I frankly don't know, and I don't know if anyone knows what really went on in that meeting, but the fact that the meeting took place at all is important because uh, Zelensky is a very persuasive man. And just the fact that he met with Modi and that Modi met with him, I think is important to keep a bridge open there for future discussions. I don't think India, no one I think thinks India is going to fundamentally change their position. There's also another India theme at this summit, and that is the quad, you know, the, the British Australia U.S. and Indian attempt to not so much deter China, because it's not that much of a military alliance, but it is a way of sending a message to China politically that, you know, you better stop your aggressive moves in the Pacific because we're all united politically in countering those moves. And of course, the Quad meeting had to be canceled because of the domestic crisis Uh, of the debt ceiling in the U.S. Uh, President Biden was supposed to go to Australia and Papua Papua New Guinea to uh, in after this, and he had to cancel that trip. The Sydney meeting was with the other quad leaders. So they had kind of a, a substitute meeting here at the G7 the other day, but it wasn't uh, quite as much fanfare as it would have been if Biden had been able to go to Australia. So the fact that Zelensky met uh, with India and that India is the most reluctant member of the Quad to do anything militarily to counter China or to uh, restrict Russian invasion of of, uh, Ukraine is, I think, uh, symbolic. Right. But the Quad actually, is not, Britain's not in the Quad. It's Japan, Australia, I'm sorry, Japan, India, yes. and the U.S. Yeah. So right, I'm sorry. I told you it was early in the morning here. <laughs> don't worry, no worries. Um, so, and, and, of course, the, the meeting in Papua New Guinea was also going to involve all of the Pacific Island nations that China has been yeah. trying to sway and bribe, particularly the Solomons, where they've made some inroads. And that's a big loss. And it's a sort of extraordinary to think that all this is happening because of these idiots in the House, these uh, Freedom Caucus, isolationist uh, you know, this buffoons. So many, this is so important. I'm glad you brought that up, Ian, because uh, it it is much more 
indicative of a much larger problem that the U.S. has at this summit, and that is not only the global south, and but particularly the global south, but even among the other G7 countries, even though they don't talk about it, there is this fear and there is this, um, shall we say, wariness about domestic politics in the U.S. I mean, it's not, if Americans think that we're the only ones who talk or care about American politics, the world cares about American politics because when, you know, the U.S. sneezes, the world catches a cold. And here the economy of the entire world is threatened for political reasons by a small group of Republican House representatives that has so many implications far beyond the U.S. and on the U.S.'s standing in the world. And the global South particularly is very wary of the U.S. because they don't trust us, frankly. And even the other G7 countries are concerned that domestic politics in the U.S. is going to go off the rails and Trump might be reelected or who knows what would happen, but that this debt ceiling crisis is definitely an indicator of the world wondering what is going to happen in the future with the U.S. and can they trust our promises and will that we make the long-term commitments and be able to stick by them. The, the G7 is nothing but an agenda-setting organization. It doesn't. It's the implementation of what happens that the G7 leaders promise will happen that is very important. And that implementation per, uh, is a long-term process. So this is the G7 is just the beginning of a long-term process which relies primarily on the U.S. being able to keep its commitments and not keep changing with every administration or having these kind of domestic crises at home that impede U.S. foreign policy abroad. Well, Alice, frankly, I am just, I cannot believe that the world is being held hostage by Marjorie Taylor Greene. And how did we ever get into a situation like that? Well, you know the story as well as I did. Um, Right-wing populism took over the Republican Party, and that's where we are now. There used to be a bipartisan consensus, and I think there still is in the Senate, at least. Uh, But in the House, which is much more attuned to um, local politics and domestic politics, because they're elected every two years. That's the way the U.S. Constitution and the founding fathers geared the whole system to have a break on the House of Representatives in the Senate. But in this case, with revenue things, uh, the House has the first say. So this is a major problem for the U.S. now, going forward in the future and at the present. And it's being shown here at the summit and with the cancellation of the Quad meeting in Australia. So back to the summit then. So we've had the leaders meet on Saturday morning at the Peace Center, the memorial for the victims of Hiroshima and the Hibakushas, uh, the the elderly survivors who are fewer and fewer in number. Yes. And then you've had meetings uh, on Saturday with both with um, Biden and Zelensky and others of the leaders, and, and Ukraine has been very much 
the dominant issue, along with China and the sense to which they, they're both accusing China of economic coercion. At the same time, they want China to lean on Russia to help end the war in Ukraine. What's the likelihood of the latter? Because China, I think, is pretty offended by what's happening, aren't they? And Russia's trying to, trying to say that the G7 is, be, is ganging up on both Russia and China. So they're throwing themselves in with China, trying to make them and China feel like they're being ostracized and punished. Yes. Um, I mean, this is, uh, well, frankly, this is the dilemma of the United States. Uh, while we want and are taking the lead in countering China's aggressive moves in the Pacific against our allies, such as Japan and, and uh, North Korea's uh, attempt to um, intimidate South Korea and Japan. And while we want to lead the charge against to restrict those moves by those countries, at the same time, there is a real problem now with the, the fear and the uh, danger that Russia and China will start to form a permanent alliance against the West. And this is, of course, the great danger here. Russia, uh, President uh, Xi of China has said that uh, their relationship with Russia is a, is a, I can't even remember the exact words, but it, it's a, um, a, a wonderful thing. And their relationship is going to go on into the future. Um, Russia, of course, is taking advantage of this. Yeah, Russia is very much the junior partner in that relationship, I should add. It has an uh, economy the size of Italy, whereas China, of course, is the, now pretty much the first uh, leading economy in the world. So um, Russia is the subordinate in that relationship, and China can pull the levers uh, for it. But the danger for the U.S. is that these two um, will develop much more into an alliance against the West rather than just a, a cooperative relationship. China is trying to throw its weight around in the dip diplomatic world by trying to be a peacemaker in Ukraine, but of course on terms that are generous to Russia, which of course you, neither Ukraine nor the West will accept. So uh, it's, uh, unless China starts to wise up, shall we say, and uh, realize that Russia's economy is not exactly, um, or Russia itself is, is a fairly weak country now compared to Europe and the U.S. in this pretty firm alliance that this G7 indicates. Um, unless China begins to change and get smart about where its real interests lie, um, it will continue to manipulate the Russian relationship against the West as a counter to the West and Japan's uh, attempts to restrict China's ambitions in the Pacific. But surely Taiwan was an issue being so close to Japan. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and that's a thorny one, is it not? It, it is. It, it is the elephant uh, sitting in the couch while you sip tea. Uh, while all the attentions on China uh, itself and Russia, particularly, and Ukraine, in fact, Taiwan is the hidden uh, real risk of war in the Pacific. And that everybody knows. On the other hand, there, you know, we do accept uh, the U.S. foreign policy is based on the fact that Taiwan is a part of China eventually. 
but our policy is that it must be voluntary voluntary for for Taiwan to go back to China rather than by force. There are some people who are predicting China will try to take Taiwan by force by 2027. Others think that they don't have to take it by force. They can do what, uh, what international relations experts call salami slicing, using boycotts, quarantines, um, incursions, uh, restricting their fishing, uh, economic blockades, in effect, um, and other economic methods, uh, as well as non-war uh, uh, military methods that they can gradually push uh, Taiwan into joining China. I, I doubt that, but the Guomindang Nationalist Party in uh, Taiwan is much more uh, amenable to going back to, to good relations with China than the current uh, administration in Taiwan. So it remains to be seen what happens in the next election. Um, the, the great irony of all this, Ian, is that I think if China had not been so militarily aggressive and obnoxious in the Pacific, not just to Taiwan, but to all the other countries in the Pacific, had it treated Hong Kong as it promised to do, rather than essentially taking it over as an authoritarian state, um, Taiwan might have voluntarily gone back to China eventually because it, it, it's so inter- economically integrated with China. Mm-hmm. Taiwanese elites and Chinese elites are very economically integrated. So I think, you know, China made a, President Xi made a very big mistake by becoming so militarily bellicose. Mm-hmm. Um, in with the, the, with the uh, wolf now, warrior. The Wolf Warrior diplomacy yes, and the and Wolf it, Warrior and the right. nine dotted line and all sure. of that and and you know I think he's reaping the consequences the blowback from that sure. now not only at the G seven but also in what's happening in Taiwan. So we've run out of time, Ellis, but I thank you very much for joining us here today. You're welcome. It was my pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Alice Krauss, who's a professor emeritus of Japanese politics and policymaking at the University of California, San Diego School of Global Policy and Strategy. He's a leading expert on Japanese politics and U.S.-Japan relations, and his books include The Rise and Fall of Japan's LDP, Political Party Organizations as Institutions, Beyond Bilateralism, U.S.-Japan Relations in the New Asia-Pacific, and Reluctant Warriors, Germany-Japan, and their U.S. Alliance Dilemma. And he joined us from Japan, and we had to tape this earlier because of the time difference. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into the Arab League summit in Saudi Arabia, where Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman welcomed Syria's dictator Bashar al-Assad back into the fold, at the same time welcoming Ukraine's President Zelensky. Most of the time we use it in the wrong way. Now you can look the word up again and again, but the dictionary doesn't know the meaning of friends. And if you ask me, you know I couldn't be much help because a friend's somebody you judge for yourself. Some are okay and they treat you real cool, and some mistake your kindness for being a fool. We like to be with some because they're funny. Others come around when they need some money. Some you grew up with around the way, and you're still real close to this. And joining us now is Dr. John Hoffman, a Middle East analyst specializing in political Islam and Middle East geopolitics. He is currently an adjunct professor at George Mason University and has published in a variety of academic-oriented platforms, including Middle East policy, foreign policy, The Washington Post, and more. 
Welcome to Background Briefing, John Hoffman. Well, thank you for having me on, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, John. And the meeting of the Arab League just took place in Saudi Arabia. And the headlines, of course, are that Bashar al-Assad, the dictator in Syria, has been welcomed back into the fold. He was hugged by Mohammed bin Salman, the... (laughs) I don't know why they call him a dictator, whatever he is, but he's a, <laughs> the thuggish ruler of Saudi Arabia. And it's a bit odd because, obviously, the Saudis uh, supported the insurrection against Assad, initially at least, until it morphed into the Islamic State. But the other aspect of it was, of course, that Ukraine's President Zelensky also showed up and addressed the uh, forum as well in Saudi Arabia. So... That was a bit of a contrast, wasn't it, given that uh, Assad owes his existence to uh, the Russians? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, beginning first with Bashar al-Assad, you know, rejoining and, and you know, appearing at the Arab League, it, it's only natural uh, in many ways that he rejoins this League of Arab Autocrats. You know, it's all of these actors within the Arab League have blood on their hands, whether it be Bashar al-Assad, Mohammed bin Salman, Mohammed bin Zayed, Abdul Fattah al-Sisi, uh, and so on. So, you know, while, and, and like you, you know, correctly mentioned, while some, while early on in, in the Syrian revolution, sought to pour money and weapons into the opposition to topple Bashar al-Assad, this was never, you know, to hearken in some sort of Syrian democracy or genuine or genuinely support the plight of the Syrian people. All of them, you know, these actors who poured money and weapons into Syria, you know, they remain uh, hostile towards democracy or genuine political or economic reform in the region. And instead, you know, th- it, this was a hijacking of the revolution by external actors who sought to advance their own interests, namely efforts to undermine Iran by eliminating its central regional partner. But also, you know, really critical to note is that so many of these Arab actors were actually never really anti-Assad as perceived in the West. You know, uh, Egypt's Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, having himself overthrew the government of Mohamed Morsi, routinely expressed his support for Bashar al-Assad out of fear of political Islamists gaining control in Syria. You know, the, the UAE regularly demonstrated its backing of Assad by expressing support for Russia's military intervention in 2015, participating with Moscow in, you know, quote-unquote, counterterrorism operations. We know that the overwhelming majority of these, quote-unquote, counterterrorism operations attacked, you know, mainstream opposition groups and particularly civilians. The UAE reopened its embassy in Damascus in 2018 and has been urging the Arab League to take Assad back for years. You know, and even Saudi Arabia, like you mentioned, you know, um, who particularly in the beginning of the war was pouring money and weapons into the opposition, leadership within Saudi Saudi Arabia gradually came to view Assad as the best actor to preserve their own interests, particularly following the rise of Mohammed bin Salman. So, you know, he, you know, there are reports that Mohammed bin Salman uh, reportedly gave, you know, a covert green light for Russia's intervention in Syria in 2015. You know, there was, uh, you know, he has expressed that his concerns are a quote, Muslim Brotherhood revolution in Syria and has really acknowledged that Bashar al-Assad is staying. So, you know, this all of these actors, this was never really about opposing Assad's tyranny. It was all about the preservation 
uh, an advancement of specific political interests held by different external actors. But before the Russians came to Assad's rescue, the Iranians came to his rescue. And that was critical because when the people rose up against him and there were massive, massive demonstrations in the streets, of particularly in Damascus, what happened was that the Assad's military could no longer fire on their, on their civilians. I mean, they, they started to break ranks. And the Iranian Quds Force came in, and their absolutely cold-blooded, ruthless snipers started shooting people down in the streets. And that basically, you know, took the steam out of the revolution, and it went underground, and it became radicalized. I mean, that's. Uh, do you agree with that analysis? Yeah, you know, and, and I think, you know, you mentioned a really key point here is everybody always, you know, talks about, you know, Russia swooping in in 2015, but... You know, it was the Iranians really on the ground who came, you know, to the quote unquote rescue, I guess, of, of Bashar al-Assad. And, you know, it was rapidly this conflict was rapidly starting to be framed within this broader struggle between, you know, Saudi Arabia and, and the Gulf, you know, against Iran for regional hegemony. And, you know, Syria was a place where, you know, countries like Saudi Arabia, Qatar, other places, you know, wanted to actively undermine Iran, undermine, you know, undermine its regional stature by eliminating one of its, you know, key regional allies. But as the situation on the ground rapidly, you know, began to change and as Assad uh, and his Iranian backers, and then, of course, when Russia comes in, when they all started to get the upper hand, the calculus of Saudi Arabia and some of these other Arab states really began to change. And, you know, this was, you know, critical for their own calculus and how they approached the Syrian conflict, recognizing that Mohammed bin Salman, you know, publicly acknowledged, you know, uh, quote unquote, Bashar is staying. And I think that was kind of the conclusion that these these actors came to. So it was almost a matter of time before he was readmitted back to this league. Just to touch on Zelensky's speech to the Arab League, let, let me quote a little bit of it. Look at how much suffering the long-term wars have brought to Libya, Syria, Yemen. How many lives have been wasted by years of fighting in Sudan and Somalia, in Iraq and Afghanistan. Everyone who adds to suffering by his new aggressions, everyone who sows enmity, everyone who wants to bring back the old days of invading, every aggressor will be cursed by the people. Well... You know, I mean, isn't Assad cursed by his own people, or at least a lot of his own people? You have a population of 22 million people originally in Syria. Half of them are now out of the country. 6.8 million people are internally displaced, and another 6 million are refugees or asylum seekers, um, you know, in neighboring countries and abroad. And uh, since the earthquake struck, an estimated 15.3 million people inside Syria are in need of some form of humanitarian assistance. Yes, you know, and, and I think, you know, what was so interesting, I guess, about Zelensky, you know, coming and addressing the Arab League is, you know, like you just said, you know, uh, Syria is kind of the epitome of, you know, the an autocrat who just, you know, absolutely slaughters his own people and has done nothing to, you know, advance the interests of his own people. But this, you know, can be applied also to Egypt's El Sisi, Saudi Arabia's Mohammed bin Salman, 
the UAE's uh, Mohammed bin Zayed, of course, not as blatant and as overt as as it happened in Syria as a result of the war. But, you know, this idea of, you know, invading and, you know, funding proxy groups and stuff like that for, you know, political purposes, that has been the bread and butter of Saudi Arabia and the UAE for, you know, decades. Of course, you know, with Zelensky's visit, it's it's interesting, you know, any wartime leader is going to try and seek support wherever he can. You know, that's that's just a natural. But in this case, you know, he's really seeking it from the wrong actors. And the optics of this visit were were very bad, I would say. You know, first, these states are some of the most autocratic actors on the planet. You know, Saudi Arabia and the UAE, for example, are ranked below Russia by Freedom House, you know, one of the most popular you know, organizations that rank political regimes around the world. You know, it, it doesn't help the narrative of fighting for democracy and fighting against authoritarianism when you travel to meet with some of the worst authoritarian actors on planet Earth. And many of these actors have openly embraced policies that have clearly aligned with Russia's interests, not Ukraine. You know, many of them have refused to openly condemn Russia's invasion. They've continued to stress their importance of their relationship with Moscow. They've refused to enforce sanctions on Russian oligarchs, many of whom have, you know, shifted their money and assets to the Middle East, you know, and the narrative of, you know, that you've been promoting for these you know, since the, it, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, you know, it, it does not fit well with these actors who are wildly at autocratic. So let's talk a little bit about some of the, the objections. Obviously, Qatar is dead against Assad, but uh, their leaders, I guess, decided to go along with the consensus and not to rock the boat, even though they support the Muslim Brotherhood who have been fighting uh, Assad but there's another aspect to the Assad regime. You know, it's a mafia family, basically. And they were perfectly happy to destroy the country just to hold on to power. And that's what's happened. But both Jordan and Saudi Arabia are fighting the spread of the narcotic drug called Captagon, which is made in Syria. And it's smuggled into neighboring countries. It's, it's an amphetamine that actually that's used in warfare to, uh, you know, to get soldiers all hopped up and and boosted so that they can fight longer. But it's also used as a, a recreational drug. And it's apparently the Captagon trade brings something like $50 million a year into uh, Assad's coffers. So how could the the Arab League be blind to that? No, absolutely. And, and you know, I, I'm not sure that, you know, they're so much blind to it as they are, you know, just a, a recognition that these actors at the end of the day, their their ultimate objectives are regime preservation and power projection. You know, the last the latter of which, you know, power projection is often a means to betray the former, the re regime preservation. I, I don't think it's so much a being blind to the narcotics trade as so much as it is, you know, a recognition that this is not any sort of existential interest to their own authority. And, you know, going back to your point about, you know, Qatar, you know, objecting, you know, more forcefully to Assad's reintegration. Yes, uh, you know, Qatar following the Arab uprisings was far more supportive of the Muslim Brotherhood and, and like-minded groups throughout the region. But in the past, 
12 years or so, you know, the brotherhood has really been undermined. It's been forced underground. Qatar's field of maneuverability because of that has been very limited. So I think, you know, they, Qatar is able to object to this on a rhetorical level, but from a practical level, you know, they are facing a far more limited field of maneuverability as counter-revolutionary actors throughout the region have, have really asserted themselves and have gained the upper hand. So in the last few minutes then, John, what's the possibility of the Arab League and Saudis now helping Assad recapture the territory that he's lost to various rebels? And of course, the U.S. occupies a certain part of the territory, the oil fields there near the uh, Iraq border, and Turkey occupies also a chunk in the northwest uh, where the earthquake just took place, and the Kurds, of course, working with the with the United States, also controls territory in the northwest. Yeah, so I, you know, I don't see these actors, you know, really doing anything regarding, you know, reclaiming territory or you know efforts such as that. What I think we're going to see more so is certain actors, you know pouring money in for reconstruction efforts within Syria as a way to try and gain leverage and influence. So they know that, you know, Syria is decimated. They know that uh, Iran is going in particular has been pouring a lot of money into reconstruction efforts. So as an effort to kind of counterbalance Iran's influence, these actors, you know, they know that Bashar al-Assad needs money. And, you know, the, the, the Gulf states have more money than God himself. So, they're going to likely, you know, start to, you know, use this reintegration of Bashar al-Assad as a as a way to aid reconstruction efforts and but which are ultimately a way to increase their own influence within uh, within Syria as primarily as a way to counterbalance Iran. I, I don't think they will really be of any help retaking any of the territory. I don't think they view it really within their own interests. You know, being so self-centered, I don't see them really doing that. So is then Assad playing a clever game here, playing the Iranians off against the Saudis so that he benefits, gets money from both? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. That's exactly what he's doing is, you know, he knows that that, you know, these states are probably wary of, you know, Iran, you know, gaining a further foothold within Syria, you know, post-conflict. So absolutely, you know, he can use this outreach to these Hey, you know, reintegrate me back into kind of the normal normalcy of Middle East politics, and you know, we'll be able to work with you as well as opposed to Iran. So, absolutely, you know, this, he knows what he's doing by far. And curiously enough, the Israelis have never, I mean, in a way, they kind of prefer Assad certainly to the rebels, and they they seem to have some kind of a deal with Assad and the Russians, for that matter, where they are able to pound the Iranians uh, whenever they feel like Iran is bringing in too many weapons into Syria. Yes, Israel has really found itself, you know, increasingly aligned with Assad in Syria because, you know, they're wary of the Iranian presence. They're wary of, you know, a, you know, strong, radical Islamist presence within Syria. And they've been able to carry out, you know, air raids into Syria, you know, pretty pretty regularly you know it's it's kind of astonishing you know how many you know cross border air raids they've launched into into Syria and there's kind of this tacit understanding between Israel and Russia in particular that you know 
Israel will, you know, be able to still target these Iranian targets while, you know, in a way, Assad is here to stay. Well, John Hoffman, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Yeah, of course, Ian. Thank you for having me. And we've been speaking with Dr. John Hoffman, who is a Middle East analyst specializing in political Islam and Middle East geopolitics. He is currently an adjunct professor at He's currently an adjunct professor at George Mason University and has published in a variety of academic and policy-oriented platforms, including Middle East Policy, Foreign Policy, and The Washington Post, and more. And he has an article at Foreign Policy magazine, The Arab Autocrat's New Religious Playbook. We're going to take a brief station break and back with an assessment of claims made by Prigozhin, the psychotic murderer leading the Wagner mercenaries, who claims that he captured the bitterly contested city of Bakhmut. I laughed and shook his hand and made my way back home. I searched for home and land For years and years I roamed I gazed a gazeless stare At all the millions here We must have died alone A long, long time ago Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Aram Shabanian, who is an open-source information gathering manager at New Lines Institute. He recently taught in non-proliferation and terrorism studies at Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey, where his research focused on the Cold War and contemporary histories of Eastern Europe and the Middle East. Welcome to Background Briefing, Aram Shabanian. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Aram. And can you make sense of what is going on now uh, around Bakhmut, the, the heavily contested city that the Russians were hoping to take back before the recent uh, Victory Day, which obviously uh, didn't happen? But now Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner mercenary group, is claiming he has captured Bakhmut. But I understood that the Ukrainians had recently made territorial advances as Russians have withdrawn. So it's hard to understand how they could have lost uh, this city all of a sudden. Yeah, you know, I, I noticed that, I saw that the news this morning and I was thinking the same thing. And I think what we're seeing here is a trap of some kind has either been set or is being set. And what I mean by that is either the Ukrainians noticed that the Russians have been building up significant reserves and artillery around the Bakhmut area, as they have been, and they either notice that as a threat and a potential trap for their forces, or they themselves are setting a trap for the Russians in that Wagner Group will come into Bakhmut now, take the city, and then wash back out of the city as, as their rather battered forces pull back to regroup, leaving Russian regular forces in charge of the city, who we've already seen are less competent and less willing to fight. Um, and so I think what we're seeing is a shift in the battlefield um, I, I don't think the Ukrainians lost the city so much as they strategically withdrew from it. Um, 
And with the number of forces that we're seeing coming in from Western countries, fully trained and equipped, ready to go, forces that haven't shown up on the battlefield for the Ukrainians, uh, I think the writing is on the wall. Uh, the Ukrainian counteroffensive is coming, is imminent, and will be shockingly powerful when it does come. So tell us about some of the uh, new forces that are coming in with fully equipped trained with modern western equipment i understand there's a brigades coming in from sweden yeah uh a brigade coming in from sweden with i believe it was six thousand men um and uh they've got uh leopard two main battle tanks and then swedish made infantry fighting vehicles and things of that nature um and so these are that's the regular ukrainian army these are guys who just spent the last several months training getting ready preparing for the battlefield, learning battlefield lessons, and then training on their new weapons. And that, then you add in the assistance the British have been giving, the Poles have been giving, the United States has been giving, uh, and you can you can really see that the Ukrainians have built up a really potent force uh, on par with a NATO army, not, not quite trained to the standards of a NATO army, but close to it compared to where the Ukrainians were in 2014, where they were pretty much a post-Soviet army. So you think that what's happening in Bakhmut is that they're just drawing either Wagner in or, or the poorly trained Russian forces in into a trap, and that they've got these new trained, equipped with modern weapons brigades ready to strike? That's correct. Um, now, whether the Ukrainian counteroffensive will be in Bakhmut or elsewhere, that I, I don't know. I'd be surprised if they counterattacked directly in Bakhmut because it's not a very strategically significant city. Um, and personally, I think that before eastern Ukraine is recaptured, the Ukrainians are going to at least make an attempt on Crimea. Um, not out of pride, but out of a sense of it's a dagger in the side of their forces and you can't really have supply lines unhindered with Crimea captured by the Russians. So um, I think watching for that is going to be the most important thing in the next couple of weeks. But the Russians are anticipating that, aren't they? Aren't they building uh, tank traps and trenches, etc., and defenses? Oh, absolutely. But, I mean, the Ukrainians are anticipating that too, and, and there's only so much static warfare can accomplish these days against an opponent who has already demonstrated that they're quite adept at shifting around the battlefield and moving forces where there's a weakness. Um, the Ukrainians tend to uh, exploit weaknesses pretty pretty rapidly, uh, whereas the Russians have difficulty following on uh, exploiting forces, uh, mostly because of the sluggishness of their military due to corruption and other, fe other factors that the Ukrainians just aren't fe uh, facing on as wide of a scale. Well, what do you make, though, Aram Sabanian, of this unbelievably hostile and open criticism of the leaders of the armed forces, the equivalent of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Gerasimov, and the defense minister, Shoigu? Wagner's head, Prigozhin, has called them out by name. He's, he's absolutely insulted them. I mean, obviously... Prigozhin is a psychotic. I mean, the man is frightening. But I don't know whether you've seen those diatribes of him standing there looking down at the dead bodies of his soldiers and screaming at Gerasimov and, and Shoigu, saying, you know, you're sitting on these desks, get off your backsides, you know, you're a bunch of useless cowards, etc. I mean, unbelievable stuff. It's so, some unhinged content. Yeah, it's like 
crazy right. man stuff. Yeah. Well, how 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 are they putting up with that? How come this guy hasn't fallen from a seventh floor window? I think uh, for the same reason that Putin hasn't fallen from a seventh floor window, which is to say, Wagner isn't necessarily the most effective battlefield force against the Ukrainians. They have to smash their way through things, but. Uh, in terms of, of personal security, that's kind of what they excel at. And that's what we've seen them deployed for around the world at times is when the Praetorian Guard of a given country can't be trusted necessarily to protect their leader who happens to be uh, in cahoots with the Russians, the Russians will send Wagner or somebody akin to them to protect that leader, somebody who doesn't have a vested interest in that country, right, other than money. Um, and so... Now, that's not necessarily true with, within Russia because Wagner are primarily Russians. That is to say, though, that their prime directive is they're, they're going for money. And so as long as Putin's able to pay them, they will protect him and Prigozhin from the Russian military. And unless the Russian military wants a really bloody struggle to try to capture him, which would not, not just shatter morale, but it could potentially draw away battlefield reinforcements on a large scale, uh, they're going to have to let it fester for a while. Um, I, it'll, it'll blow up at some point, but I don't know when. So let's talk about then NATO and the United States. I'm always astounded at the extent to which the United States sets its own red lines, uh, about what it can't do to help Ukraine. And then months later, after dithering, they deliver what they said they couldn't deliver. Tanks being a, a more recent example. And now we're having the same thing with the F-16s, where they said they couldn't do that, possibly do that. And now the Biden administration had decided to allow Ukrainians to pilots to be trained on F-16s, which the Dutch and other NATO countries are perfectly willing to give to the Ukrainians, even though Russia, of course, is warning against it. Yeah, and I think that part of that is um, similar to the reasons that Germany is citing for their relative sluggishness at times to send weaponry to Ukraine, which is, and they're not, the Ukrainian, or the Germans haven't necessarily cited this publicly, but they've signaled it. The message I get is we can't be seen to be leading the charge against the Russians. Germany for the legacy of World War II and the United States just for the superpower rivalry. We can't be seen to be leading the charge against the Russians because then the Russians can, at least in the, I think the eyes of the Biden administration, can more easily point to the United States as the boogeyman in the room that's, that's upping the ante and ratcheting up tensions. Whereas if it looks more reluctant, you know, if, if F-16s are only sent after a year of cities being hit with ballistic missiles, then it looks a little bit more in the history books like America was a less willing engaged, engaged, uh, less willingly engaged in the escalation of the war. So what do you make then of Zelensky's appearance at the G7 summit in Japan? He arrived on a French government plane after a stopover in Saudi Arabia. And it looks as though he's kind of the the man of the moment there. He seems to be dominating the G7 with everybody sort of praising him. So is he going to get something out of this? Yeah, I mean, I think that on top of being the man of the hour, I mean, we saw him at the Arab League speaking and famously now Bashar al-Assad took his earpiece out to ignore him. But I mean, he was speaking in English, which Bashar speaks too, so didn't really do much. Um, 
But he is he's the man of the hour in, in spotlights from the Arab League to the G7. And I think that what we're seeing is kind of a seismic shift in global politics. That's not going to happen rapidly. But over the next 10 to 20 years, I think what we're going to see is is the fading in, in Russian power, at least temporarily. And we're going to see the growth of Ukrainian power. And I mean, there's the, the famous uh, Hebrew proverb, you know, uh, uh, a language is nothing but a dialect with an army and a navy. And as we've seen the Ukrainian army and navy and air force grow stronger and more potent, the fact that Ukraine's culture and language and society is separate from Russia's has become more ingrained in Western eyes and in the eyes of the world. Um, and so I think that the idea that, that Ukraine supplants Russia at places like the G7, perhaps becoming the G8 again and including Ukraine, a post-war Ukraine, not out of the question. Um, Ukraine has already sown the seeds for claiming Russia's Security Council seat at the at the UN by citing that Russia never lived up to its agreements uh, when it got that chair, got that position, the agreements that they had uh, signed with the other former Soviet states. So in effect, those agreements are null and void. The Ukrainians have laid the groundwork for that. Whether or not they'll be successful is anybody's guess, but it is important. It is notable at the very least. So. If the, if there is to be a powerful Ukraine after this war, then that will require a lot of money to reconstruct the country. And I understand there's a lot of the, like a half a trillion dollars worth of frozen Russian funds in uh, various European banks. So I can see that happening. And of course, in effect, they're already becoming a NATO country. Just you just mentioned all the arms that are coming in and. You know, everything Everything is blown up in Putin's face, in other words. He's created a country that used to be a fraternal country. Now they, they literally hate the Russians. He was worried about NATO expansion, and now they're a de facto member of NATO. At least they're being armed by NATO. So on all fronts, it seems like Putin has miscalculated monstrously. But that's not to say that the Ukrainians are not suffering massive losses, not just to their infrastructure and their cities, but we don't know how many soldiers have died. We know a lot of civilians have. And in an offensive, uh, when you go on the offensive, you suffer more casualties. So at the end of the day, how can the Ukrainians keep this up? I mean, what kind of manpower pool do they have? Well, I mean, obviously it's not infinite, um, but the Russians will be drawing on less well-trained reserves as the Ukrainians continue to draw on, on better trained reserves. Um, and ultimately the Ukrainians want their entire country back and they won't be satisfied until they get their entire country back. And it's not politically tenable to talk about anything less than that at this point in Ukraine. Now that might change down the road. If Ukraine takes another hundred, hundred thousand casualties, maybe the people will say, Hey, let Donbass go or something. I don't know that that much. I can't guess, but uh, but at the moment, it's it's very politically untenable to even discuss it uh, as a politician in, in, in Ukraine. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is that Ukraine post-war will be very ideally situated to grow itself within the Western economies. It's not Afghanistan, which had a mostly rural agrarian economy with the exception of some cities. Uh, Ukraine's got a very powerful, not just agricultural base, but an industrial base. Uh, mind, mind you that uh, Kharkiv is where the, the more sophisticated tanks that the Soviet Union built, the T-64s were built in Kharkiv. 
Uh, Mykolaiv in the south is where uh, gas turbine engines for warships are made, along with in the southern coast they make uh, rocket engines and things like that. So Ukraine is, is situated to not just be an importer of weapons, but an exporter of weapons to NATO and a potential exporter of weapons and military training to the rest of the world. And so that's something to keep an eye on as well. But they've got to recapture those. They've taken Kharkiv, but they've got to recapture the other centers that you just mentioned. Absolutely. And and in, in places like Donetsk City and uh, you know some of the, the cities that have been held for a while, that's going to be probably an ugly fight. But it looks like when the Russian military falls or starts to fall back, they're going to fall back rapidly. And the analogy I've been giving people is that uh, the Russian military advanced over Ukraine less like a tsunami, you know, where it's like a wall of water, uh, and more like a, a regular wave at the beach that kind of laps up the shore and, and washes up the shore maybe a distance, but then recedes back into the sea, right? They're not... There's not this great wall of Russian military might waiting outside the walls of Bakhmut to advance over the Ukrainians. It's just going to splash up a bit and then recede. Um, and the Ukrainians are the ones who truly have a tidal wave of power behind them, uh, in my opinion, at least. Well, Aram Shabanian, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Aram Shabanian, who's an open source information gathering manager at New Lines Institute. He recently taught in nonproliferation terrorism studies at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey, where his research focused on the Cold War and contemporary histories of Eastern Europe and the Middle East. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.